May I extend uh, my welcome along with everyone else's? Um, I'm Steve Risky. I'm the current teaching pastor here, um, the interim, if you will. Uh, we're sort of in a transition as a church. For those of you who are visiting, by the way, we, um, we started as a church in the year 2000. 2001, 2001, uh, although the preparations were there in 2000. And, uh, and that year, late in the year, we brought in a young, young seminarian named Kevin Crawford who, uh, who became our friend and, and he helped uh, build this church and he, and he left just this year. And, um, and so we just sort of keep moving forward, right? And, and, and so if you've been here a long time, if you've been one of the people who's come and, and, and your story goes far back beyond Kevin, oh, well, I mean, like all the way through these years together, or if you're the person who came today and Kevin Crawford just became an endearing name to you that you probably already feel like his best friend, right? It's close, close. Um, wherever you are, and this is a funny thing, but we need to say it every week. We must, every single time we gather, not just to extend that welcome, that if you're new, hey, welcome, um, but wherever you are, wherever you come from, wherever, wherever your faith sits today, wherever, like, you know, when you're, when you're seeing these songs and, and maybe you're the person who feels like, I feel really close to God today. Maybe you're the person who's feeling that, like, I don't feel a thing and I know I should or could or I have. Maybe you're the person who... You got here today and, and you're trying out this God thing and it maybe feels weird. Wherever you sit, we want you to know not just that you're welcome, but that we are glad that you're here. Sometimes it can feel like you enter a group like this and if you don't meet their standard, you know, sometimes uh, we'll use like something like a chess club. If I invited you to chess club and you really like chess, you're like big into castling early or late or whatever your deal is, that might sound good. But if I invite you to chess club and you don't like to play, you might say something about I don't play chess. And then imagine I say to you something like, no, come on, it's going to be great. We do way more than chess there. We also have Kool-Aid. We have punch. We got the punch. The Kool-Aid reference gets weird for people sometimes. But uh, <laughs> thanks. That was a good laugh. I feel good about me right now. All right. <laughs> Wherever you come from, thanks so much. I want to invite you guys to uh, think about journeys, by the way. Some of you did road trip. I met... Uh, that family coming in from Maryland today, visiting their kids, really great. And, uh, and when you start on a road trip, there's sort of two kinds. There's the kind that very few people take where you just sort of start driving just to see where you end up. Most of us, if we take a road trip, we know where we're going. Um, just this last week, by the way, uh, my daughter has turned 16 this year. And in order to get your license, you're supposed to get those 50 hours of, of drive time on your temps. I know that some of you cheated and pretended you got your 50 hours. We're not going to say who it was, but it's not us. I'm making my daughter get her hours. And, and so with five hours left to go, I thought, I have a couple days. We can maybe swing this. Pack the kids in the car. Sandy had to work. And so, you know, she's going to be, uh, she works 12s as a nurse, labor and delivery nurse. So if any of you are having a baby today, let her know. She's over there. And... Uh, Pack the kids in the car, and my 16-year-old daughter is going to drive us to mom and dad's, spend the night a couple nights, and then drive back. And mom and dad live on the east side of Cleveland. Boom, two and a half there, two and a half back. At least it's two and a half when I drive it. It might take longer when you've got to rigorously stick to the speed limit for fears. Uh, I stay mostly close to the speed limit. I like tastefully close. You know, my daughter, she's got to stay there, right? And so it takes longer. And... We hop in the car and we're driving back and it's been fascinating for me to see driving through her eyes. Because you forget, right? 
you forget how terrifying it is to, to switch lanes. After a while, it's just sort of like a movement of the soul. This lane feels bad, that lane feels better. Just make sure you don't kill anyone off to the right. Or this is my left. It's your right, though, right? And uh, off we go, right? But what's really crazy to watch is those green signs are really hard for her to follow around the highways, right? To like, to try to grab all of them in the right lane, all those sorts of things. And I'm watching it because it used to be like that for, for all of us. And while she's on the journey, she can become so tunnel visioned. So tunnel visioned and into what's going on in her lane. And is that semi going to hit its brakes super fast? And of course, we all know that no semi can actually hit its brakes super fast. But if you feel it when you're a new driver, that she forgets to look where she's going. She forgets to make sure that she's actually making it to her destination, which is a realistic thing. Sometimes it's, it happens to us who've been driving for a few more than <clears throat> a few months. And because we forget, we're just driving, we get absorbed with what we're doing, with, with the conversation we're having, the, the thing going on that we, we also might miss a turn, right? Maybe the rainstorm gets really bad around you and you know, your, your driving comes tunnel visioned. And the Christian life and, and anyone's life can begin to look like that. We can begin to come so tunneled that we forget where we're going. And so today, I want to invite you to join me on a little bit of a journey with Jesus to check where he's going. He, uh, in, in the book of Matthew, if you've got a Bible, we're going to go there. I brought mine, beat up. I've had to like tape it together a couple times. Um, when it falls apart, I don't know what I'll do because I've written in this one. The new kind, someone forgot to write all my notes in them. And so anyway, um, but in the book of Matthew, five times Jesus stops and, and, and they're called the five discourses. And there's like these lengthy discussions that he gives where it began and Jesus began to speak. And if you've ever heard of the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at that earlier in the summer or the greatest in the kingdom. We looked at that a few weeks ago in chapter 18. Well, this is the last one. For those of you who like this sort of thing, it's called the Olivet Discourse because he was on the Mount of Olives. It's not really exciting. It sounds cooler though to say Olivet. But, uh, and in it, he begins to talk about the end, about the goal, about where this thing's going. See, the whole book of Matthew, Jesus has been advancing, telling us how he thinks heaven operates, how he wants you to understand how God thinks about humans and human discourse and who we are and what we are. And he continually says, the kingdom of heaven is like this and the kingdom of heaven is like that. And in this parable, he begins, uh, he, there were three in a row and the first one began, the kingdom of heaven is like, you know, the 10 virgins. And if you've ever read this one, the 10 virgins. And so this next one says, for it will be, and it is again referring to the kingdom of heaven. So for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. And to one he gave five talents. A talent, by the way, was an enormous sum of money. Um, it's a year's wages, let's say. So uh, I don't know how much you guys make. We'll say the average. What is it, 55,000 in America right now? So to each... The first one he gave, five talents, so 55 times five. Anybody? Quickly, quickly, 30, 30, 35. You said 275? All right, I'll trust you. He's right. To another two, that's 110. I beat Nate at it. Well, I know that, right? Okay, we saw that. All right, to another one, and to each according to his ability. Then he went on his way. And to, uh, to he who had received five talents, he went at once and he traded with them and, and he made five talents more. And, and so he also had two talents. 
Uh, so also he who had two talents, he made two talents more. And he who had received one talent went and he dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. It's a safe way to not lose your master's money. Um, there's a version, by the way, in, uh, of this with a different amount of money, and it's in the book of Luke, where uh, Jesus has 10 servants, and the other seven, they just go blow all the money, by the way. Um, just to let you know that there is even a worse thing to do here. But anyway, uh, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward and bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I made five talents more. And his master said to him, the great line, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also, he who had two talents came forward and said, Master, you've delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had received one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here's what's yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and, and slothful servant. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I've not sowed and gather where I've scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least invested my money in the bank with the bankers. And at my coming, I could have, you know, received with my own with some interest. Yeah, I get 2% on that. We'll set Nate to work. All right. And then, uh, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will be given, or sorry, for to everyone who has will be given, and he who ha uh, will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable of the talents. This picture that Jesus gives of a master who goes away and then he returns looking for the return on what he invested in his servants. And anytime we hear one of these parables of Jesus, one of the challenges we have to do is say, okay, in what way does this illustration he gave, this metaphor, this, uh, this how does it cross over into, uh, into our everyday life or into what we would think of as reality? And so in order to do it, I have a couple questions that we need to look at to sort of answer this out. First of all, we're going to have to ask, when did the man go on the journey? What, what's the deal with the man going on the journey? Um, what do the talents represent? And finally, how can we live in such a way that his investment makes a profit? Those the, the questions we got to pick up. And so with that, let's jump in on the first question, right? So the man went on a journey. In this, there's a master who, who has everything and everything belongs to him. And we would, we really struggle, by the way, with this word servant in English. Because it's halfway between what we would think of as a servant in, in our world and what we would have thought of as a slave. Uh, it has, in the servant sense, it's the idea that you're, um, you're not necessarily considered property, but you don't have any property. You're living in a master's house and all the property belongs to the master and you're operating the master's stuff and of course he's taking care of you. And so in that sense, you get a lot closer to slave without the sort of... Uh, um, I treat you as a not human part and, and some of the things that go with that. And so we struggle with English. You know, sometimes it'll say bond servant or something like that in English. But here's this person who the master has said, I'm going away. But when he entrusts something to him, it's not his stuff. 
It's not, it's not his in the, in, the, in the sense that we might think of, I own my stuff. Once I, once I work for a living and I get a paycheck, that, that money no longer belongs to my employer, right? And my employer asked me to give that money back, we would not, right? Okay, and, and so here's this person. And so what, when did the master, what's the sort of the picture Jesus is given? Is, is he referring to when he leaves and he comes back for the church and it's actually a much bigger picture? Because the first page of the Bible, literally the first page, it says that God made Adam and Eve in his image and the first thing he tells them is, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion of the earth. Our identity as humans, the thing we were made is we were put on the blue and green marble and everything on it belongs to God's. You remember that line in Matrix when Morpheus looks and says, you think that's air you're breathing? There's this sense that like, I think reality is a certain way. In the same way you look at this and that air you're breathing, you couldn't make it. That coffee you drink, just because you could buy it or Brookside bought it and put it in the back, you can't make water and you can't make coffee, you can't any of it. We are always living, I mean every second of our day, living off of the stuff that God created. Which isn't a bad thing. I mean, keep living by all means. But we want to really begin to think like, oh my goodness, everything was given to us freely so that we could invest in it. And that be fruitful and multiply and take dominion of the earth. God's vision was that he was going to cooperate with us and we were going to cooperate with one another and we were going to spread his will all across this planet. We are going to bring whatever order and whatever beauty. And it's even hard for us to imagine what we could have done because on the pretty much second page of the Bible, maybe third, it's in chapter three, we looked at God and said, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I, instead of cooperating with you and cooperating with them, and I'm just going to get, I'm going to take care of for me. Those of us old enough to remember, <laughs> he who dies with the most toys wins. Some, a lot of us grew up in the me decade. That decade where we said, it's about me. The best life a person can have is when I take care of me and mine. And many of us maybe had a poster of like a Lamborghini. On the, remember when like the poster of the Lamborghini was sweet, by the way? <clears throat> Some of you young people laughed out of like pity on us. But it was cool. It was really cool. With like the seagull doors. All right, anyway. They were cool. Nervous laughter now. No, they were. So, along comes Jesus. When he keeps saying, I mean, from the first words that he's speaking in the, in the book, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is like, and he's always talking about this kingdom of heaven. He's saying, heaven has come to tell you how you can rejoin your purpose. Rejoin the way that I made you. You can return to relating to God a certain way and relating to each other a certain way. And you can go out and you can build. Okay, so the master leaving is God setting us on earth. And then the parable of talents is saying there's going to be a day where he's going to come and call it all to account. The end. There will come a day where he will call accounts. But if that's the case, we've got to move up to the second question. What about those talents? Well, perhaps you've learned it. We've said it a couple of times this summer. A talent was an amount of money. 200, 275,000 for the first guy. I did the math real quick in my head. And uh, 
it was not until somewhere around the 14 or 1500s that it ever begins to appear as uh, something like skills. You know, like I've got nunchuck skills, bow, bow hunting skills, <laughs> com computer hacking skills. If I'm going to make some old people references, I've got to make some young people references. Um, anyway, it's the worst movie. I don't know how any of you liked it. But uh, <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite, for those of you who need. Okay, so that when we read it, but because of how English developed, and it's because of this parable, because of how it was preached in English, we had to look and say, well, the master gave talents, and if the master gave talents, what did he give me? And I start to think through, and I go, oh, you know, I have a set of skills, bow hunting skills, and, and, and it must be that. And because of that, we use the word talent in English to refer almost exclusively to our skills. These are talented musicians. They're skilled musicians, right? But I'd like you to try to ditch that definition for a moment. Now we're gonna, it'll bring back in, it'll matter here in a moment. But try to get rid of it and try to imagine talent had never ever been associated with skills and it had remained just an amount of money. And ask yourself, what has God given you? Well, we could start with, he's given you a certain amount of time. On average, approximately 80 years. Somewhere around 30,000 days. Right. It's using it up, right? Every time you do the tick-tick, by the way, like certain people's anxiety just spikes, which it's like a parlor game now. But uh, you've given days, right? You've been given time. Not only you've been given time, you've been given your body. Now, for some of us, our bodies betray us. And, and, and we can't do the things that we long to do with our body. And then it begins to provide pain for us. Get the achy knees or something as we go through. But regardless... Your body is the facility that God gave to you to bring your will to the world. I'm just going to keep going with references, but if you ever saw the movie Ghost, back to the 80s, mid-decade, Lamborghinis on the wall, Patrick Swayze, huh? Patrick Swayze dies at the beginning of the movie, and the whole movie's about this guy who's a ghost who can't do anything. So he wakes up in the operating room and he goes to say hi to the doctor or something like, hey, what's going on? And, and the guy, <laughs> right through him, which by the way, before, before computers, that was a sweet sweet effect for a movie. And, and you get this guy who's despairing because he can't do anything. Nothing. And, and it's like the big moment in the movie where he manages to push the penny up the wall like that's something. But you, you've been given a body. And your body is your agency to affect your will into this world. So when you punch a person or when you touch them in grace or when you use your body to steal or to give or it's always... Right? You've been given time. You've been given a body. You've been given relationships. You've been given a certain amount of, uh, of treasure, right? money or, or whatever you put in this world. You know, I have some. I'd like more. You know, right? But we begin to believe that all of these things that were given to us, their whole point is to be used to bring glory or goodness to me. See, that, that problem that Adam and Eve began at Eden, that we began to rule as though the point is to bring everything to ourselves. And we began to take from one another and hurt from one another. This is the, the human problem. So this treasure of the talent, and oh, by the way, he has given you skills or, or talents. Think of that. The time you're given, the relationships you're given, this body, the certain amount of money, certain amount of talent, all these sorts of things. Every single thing that you have control over is your talents. 
So there's the talents. What has God given us control over? Right. Which brings us to the third question then, which is, I've lost my third question, so. Uh, <laughs> my poor slides guy's back there scrambling. Um, the third question was, how do we invest them, right? Did I get that one right? He'll get there. How do we invest our talents in a way that actually matters? So in the parable, it just says they went and made more. You were offered the opportunity, if you were the one talent guy, to, to, to go and put it even in the bank. So what about yours? Are you supposed to multiply your time? You know, I put my time in the bank and, and brought more time back, <laughs> right? Well, thankfully, Jesus lets us know. So I don't have to sort of guess because this parable ends, and I didn't, I didn't put it on the PowerPoint, but I want to read just a few lines from what he goes into next. So as soon as he goes into that one, and he says, when the Son of Man comes into his glory, and the angels with him, they're going to sit on his glorious throne. So he stopped parabling now, and he's just going to tell you about it. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one from the others in the same way that a shepherd uh, separates sheep and goats. And I'll just read the part where he says to the people on the right. Then the king will say to those on his right, you know, in the, in the scripture, right hand equals good, left hand is bad. Left-handed people are bad. Yeah, okay. Um, and he says, uh, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, inherit the kingdom. So in the same way that in the last parable, people were in, given back what was given to them, he says, there will come a day where he will long to give to you all of the rulership that was supposed to belong to humans. You were supposed to inherit it. Did you know that in heaven, you'll still have work? Only it'll be easy and fun. And you'll have great things. Maybe you'll build pyramids. I don't, I don't know what we're going to do with all of that. But because it's, it's a secret. It actually says, no eye is seen and no ear is heard and no mind has ever conceived what God has planned. But we have this picture of earth of what we were supposed to be and we just sort of try to extrapolate. But it says, uh, it says, inherit the kingdom that was prepared to you because I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink and I was a stranger and you welcomed me and I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they're going to look at him and say, what? What are you talking? When, when, when were you hungry? You're God. You're not allowed to get hungry. Uh, what, oh, a stranger? And, and, and he's going to ask, how, what, how do we do all those things? And he's going to say to them, truly I say to you, as much as you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. He just told you how to invest. We'll go with a really old reference. Like Soylent Green, it's people. It's people. You want to use your life up in a way that matters. If you're thinking, well, the parable of the talents says that there's going to be a calling to accounts. And, and this is why I wanted to make sure that we redefine talents because, you know, I play guitar. I have a guitar skill. I've got bow hunting skills and guitar skills, right? So I play my guitar and, and am I supposed to like go to heaven and like be like, so uh, here's how I multiplied my guitar time. I mean, I don't even know. I played in church, I guess. Does that count, right? No, listen to me. It's people. How did you pour your life into people? How did you go and rescue them? No, think of those things. It's not just I loved them and nice to them, was nice to them. Each of those things suggested that there was cost to you in order to bring well to another. To go and visit somebody in prison in that world is a dangerous thing even because what if you get associated with them and thrown in prison too, okay? And maybe in our world, giving of our time, giving the person who is a drink of water, giving of our actual things that we have, are you using of the well-being you have to give to others? 
This is how we do it. Think about, uh, so that's the, uh, the, the sheep and the goats. How about when he talked about the greatest in the kingdom, they asked, how do we be great at kingdoming? And he immediately begins to talk about becoming like little children and then how we like, instead of causing other people to sin, how we go and rescue them and forgive them. And remember how much forgiveness was piled all over that. Do you rescue relationships? Are you the type who when somebody's hurt you, you shut the door and slam it and say, I will not. Or are you the type who gives of yourself and, and, and it's costly? If you've been hurt, right? If you've been really hurt, you probably at some point had that, I know I should forgive. And we start using that word should. It's a way of trying to coach ourselves toward the right. But our heart goes, ah, no, we, Right? And this resentment, and maybe that, you know that feeling I'm talking about where there's like this, this shield over your heart that won't let you get out toward others. And it takes incredible courage to take it down and say, I would rather be hurt by them again than allow this relationship to remain broken. Some of you have tried reconciling to your enemies and had it kicked back in your face, haven't you? And at that point, maybe you said, it's not worth it. I can't do it. And the king is trying to say, don't you understand? I saw it. I know what you are. You are an investor. You are an investor. I know what you are. Well done. Think of this, uh, this song that we, we, we sang here before this. I was watching the words as we sang them. And there was that line that, like, that says, the lie that says I'll never measure up. Which there's a weirdness to that line because like all really, really, really good lies, it's mostly true. I mean, when are you going to measure up to, how, how are you doing at measuring up to Jesus? You know, like you ever get that like feeling like I'm 80% there. What am I even going to do? I, I can't even imagine how, what it means to measure up. And so I can't. Well, that maybe not, maybe it's not a lie, but the lie that's implicit in it is, you can't measure up. Therefore, God looks at you and goes, ew. Yeah, there had that feeling that God looks at you and maybe he has sort of a benign like, um, well, I guess I'm supposed to love you. I, well, I can't stand you, but all right, fine. Here, I'll just sort of put you. But when I allow myself to believe I'm loved just because, because that's how love works. I don't make my children measure up to my love. I don't even know what that means. And it's not because they can or they can't. It's an absurd idea. No one makes their children, well, no one who actually loves makes their children measure up. And if you, were, if you had to live always trying to measure up to your parents, you know the wounding that came from it because love and measuring up aren't the same thing. They don't coexist. Love is just because. And if so, if God is saying, you whether you measure up, are loved. What happens is, from that love, I'm like, well, I'm loved. I can go love you anyway. Measuring up is a ridiculous idea instead because the servants did not ever have to ask whether or not they deserved those piles of money, did they? It was their master's stuff. All they had to do was keep using their master's stuff and investing in others, investing in people, rescuing people, caring about people, bringing people to, where, to, to well-being in every way they know how your life will come to an end. You are only given so many days. You're going to come to the end of it and you want to ask this sort of thing. So let's, let's sort of review so we can do this. When your life comes to an end, oh, I, the greatest in the kingdom, um, there's, 
there's one more, the Sermon on the Mount, I put that in there because it's another place where Jesus teaches how heaven operates. And once again, the amount of time uh, with people, right? Dropping our anger and, and dropping our contempt and becoming rescuers and, and, and those sorts of things. So I wanted to place Jesus has spent the whole book of Matthew telling you how to invest. It's him. It's people. With that in mind, let's begin to move forward. So the review here is this. Number one, God entrusted earth to us, but we have turned and used it and used one another to our own gain. This is humanity. This is our, this is our problem condition as we've come to believe that the, that the good life is when I can accrue as much as I can for me. You'll just have to take care of you. Jesus says it's the opposite. The best possible life is when you just keep pouring out to others more and more and the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's why the one hidden in the ground is cast out. I mentioned the parable where there was the ones who, who went and spent the money on themselves and, and something different happens to them. They, uh, they, get, they get executed, actually. This, this servant gets treated differently. And Christians are always asking, does that mean we go to hell if I, if I don't invest enough? This feels like works-based Christianity. It's not the thing. What he's trying to say is, don't you understand that when you refuse to invest the things, the being that God has given you into others, no good life comes to you. Nothing of the good of heaven is returned to you because it can't. But when, and you figured this out, I hope, a little bit. When you invest in others, when you love others, when you build others up, when you rescue, that the good life comes to you. My mom was uh, telling me this this weekend while I was home. Uh, we were talking about the sermon and uh, she's like, you know this, how this hit uh, just recently. My mom was the benefits coordinator for a hospital. And years and years and years ago, a woman had come to her because her, uh, her, she had not used the hospital's benefits because her husband worked for another company and he had benefits. And it was before family leave and he had been sick for too long. And so he was terminated and he was going to lose his life insurance. And the company had told him, well, you're just going to lose your life insurance. And she's like, is there any way to keep it? Well, my mom, because she knows how these things work, she goes, give me your policy. Let's look at it. And she looks at the policy and my mom finds the little tiny rider down at the bottom that says that she can keep the life insurance. She has to pay some huge amount of money for it, like a thousand bucks a month. But it was for a large amount of money, like a couple hundred thousand dollars. And her husband was about to die. And so she paid, I think for like, maybe mom said like two months of life insurance at a couple thousand, because my mom knew the system. And the woman years later ran into my mom just this, this last week and said to her, you saved my life. Mom's like, what? She's like, she remembered her as an employee there. She's like, what did I, you know, what did I do, right? And, and, and this woman explained the situation. Now here's the deal. That wasn't my mom's benefits deal. It wasn't her job. She didn't have to go looking through someone else's insurance riders from another. She could have gotten back to her work and her business and her busyness and missed this opportunity. She would, she would have missed it. Because it wasn't, it wasn't a huge deal. She just decided to like take a little time out of her day to help another person. And, and she could have had no idea what it would have brought to this person because she ended up being able to get her husband's life insurance and that was, of course, what kept her afloat because that's what life insurance is, right? And, and then this return comes years later. The return years later that she found out a few seconds of her day that wasn't a big deal 
did that much? What a little investment that gained a lot of interest. Wouldn't all of us put a few moments down if we knew that it was going to bring someone else a couple hundred thousand dollars of life insurance? Wouldn't we do that sort of thing? And wouldn't we take great joy in it? But here's the problem and here's the mystery of our life. Those opportunities don't announce themselves very well, do they? You know, like when you go to the bank and they're like, ooh, 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 come to me. I'll give you 3% interest, huh? <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, okay. Most of the best investments ever don't announce themselves very well. Your investments in people, you have no idea what you're doing. And, and some of them come back to you in this life and others will come back to you at the great judgment. But in all ways, those of you who have hidden yourself in the ground, what is there for you? This is the reward. This is it. Continuing on here. Um, everything under our control is an opportunity to build either his kingdom or own. I met with a businessman who's coming to the end of his sort of his working part of his life and, and I kind of asked him like, what, what's your plan for the rest of it? And, uh, and he's the kind who, who would think on a big scale and he thinks, oh man, you know, I, uh, you know how like there's uh, all this horrible infrastructure in Puerto Rico and the, and the hurricane has knocked it all out? He's like, I would love to see if I can put people together to help build the sort of infrastructure there that could keep that from going on. Can you imagine if he succeeds? That's a big dream. And, um, another, uh, was sort of a tale of two pastors, but I was sitting in uh, Starbucks a while back and I saw, uh, I, there was a pastor, I couldn't help but hear it, he was about to that microphone to myself. 